Welcome to our panel. My name is Rachel Lyons, and I'm the Executive Director of Space for Humanity. Um, during this panel, we will be discussing exploring the Earth from the outside with an incredible group of people who are probably some of the best in the world to talk about this. Um, we will have time for questions at the end, and you can also submit your questions via Twitter at hashtag rediscoverearth. So to start with, my, with the introductions, first I'd like to start by introducing Ryan Hartman, who is the CEO and president of Worldview. Worldview is a stratospheric balloon company inspiring the global community to rediscover Earth through its stratospheric remote sensing and future capabilities such as space tourism. Ryan has been the CEO of the company since 2019 and a fun fact about Worldview and my work with Space for Humanity is that we have flight number one with Worldview and nine additional uh, space tourism flights with them. Um, next, I would like to introduce Dr. Kathy Sullivan. Kathy is a former NASA astronaut, US Navy officer, and crew member on three spaceflight missions. NASA, um, Kathy was selected by NASA as part of the first group to include women in 1978, which is absolutely amazing and pioneering. It was about time. Yeah. For real, yeah. Um, so on her first mission, she performed the first spacewalk ever by an American woman. On her second mission, she helped deploy Hubble Space Telescope. And on her third mission, she served as payload commander on the first space lab mission for NASA's mission to planet Earth. And she was recently appointed by President Joe Biden to serve on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and finally, I would like to introduce, like to introduce Richard Garriott de Caillou. Richard is the president of the Explorers Club. He's a founding father of the video game industry and commercial spaceflight industry. Richard is a flown private astronaut. He was the sixth private astronaut to go to the International Space Station, and he is the first second generation astronaut, so his dad was a NASA astronaut. Richard is the first person to have explored pole to pole, orbited the Earth, and reached the deepest point in the ocean, the Challenger Deep. Although it's important to point out, Kathy has beat me from space to the deep. Wow. I'm the most vertical person in the world. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and Richard also served on NASA Advisory Council. Um, and then, oh yeah, let's do some claps for Richard. Thank you. And as mentioned, my name is Rachel Lyons. I am the executive director of an organization called Space for Humanity. Um, space for Humanity is a nonprofit organization which sponsors people to go to space. So we sponsor people to go to space because there is this transformative experience that happens to astronauts. When astronauts go to space and look back at our interconnected, beautiful, fragile jewel of a planet in the infinite universe. And very oftentimes when astronauts come back down, they have completely new perspectives about everything that is happening on our planet from the environment, humanitarian issues, to even their place in their local communities. 
Um, in just this past year, we've worked with a number of different spaceflight providers. In the past, we've partnered with Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, um, and a few other worldview, of course, um, space perspective. And just this past year, we sponsored our first two people to go to space. So we sponsored the first Mexican-born woman to go to space, as well as um, the first African and Arab woman and first Egyptian person to go to space. And both of these people, thank you, have had extraordinary experiences in their 11-minute rocket ride um, and have come back down and shared it far and wide, shared their experience with many, many people. Um, some highlights include having a Barbie made after them, um, being on the cover of Vogue Mexico, um, being Glamour Woman of the Year in Mexico, starting a foundation specifically around helping young people go into STEM fields, um, doing a tour of Egypt and sharing this perspective and this experience with thousands of people, meeting with the Mexican Congress and president. Um, it has been astounding to watch the impact that they're making, and this is what our mission is. It's about helping people go and create an impact with their, with their experience. So with that, um, I want to start by talking about the overview effect. And so what that is, it's what I, it's, you know, what I've been talking about, which is this experience that happens to astronauts, this to astronauts, this transformative experience of seeing the Earth from space. There's a lot of talk about the overview effect and about, you know, can you experience it from an 11-minute rocket ride? Or can you, you know, do you need to go to orbit? And I've heard unique experiences from every astronaut who's had, who's gone. Um, so Richard, I'd love to start with you and just have you speak to your overview effect experience? You know, was it a moment or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you, <clears throat> you know, for me, what I find fascinating about, first of all, just the word, the overview effect, I had actually never heard that word despite my family history in the space program prior to experiencing it. Um, and then once I did experience it, it was obvious that I'd had this, you know, transcendent moment that I knew must have been, you know, the closest I got to hearing the word was my dad said, my dad who was very Spock-like, uh, you know, he was like, you know, son, uh, uh, the one thing you remember for the rest of your life is the view out the window, and so we're gonna plan your mission with as much time at the window as possible. And uh, so that was the closest to advice about the overview effect I received prior to, the, prior to the flight. But I think all of us have experienced it immediately not only have this transformation, but you also go like, if we could only get you know, half a percent of the popula population of this planet to have this moment, it would profoundly change the course of human history. But until, it, literally, by the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my perspective on the overview effect, but it has been changed, importantly, just in the preparations for this panel because of this question, does it take an orbit? Because for me, it did. And that actually made me worry about how we can share this with people. And so for me, it went something like this. You know, when you're in space, you're going around the world at 17,000 miles an hour. You go all the way around every 90 minutes. You see a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes. You cross whole continents like North America in 20 minutes. And you know, if you were gonna use Google Earth on your computer and use 20 minutes to cross the United States, you'd get bored and walk away from it pretty quick. But I'm telling you, when you are 250 miles up in space and you are looking down at this amazingly beautiful planet, seeing it at an amazing level, of an, an unexpected level of beauty and detail 
despite that altitude, you are glued to that window. And, uh, and you notice things, like you notice how weather forms and interacts with itself and with land masses and temperatures of water. You notice the edges of all the tectonic plates. You notice how wind and water shape the planets, that, were, that, that shape the continents, and wash material out into the oceans. And you see the impact of humanity everywhere, you know, deforestation and roads and dams and uh, silt or pollution, we can't really tell which, running out into the oceans. And so you're just glued to this and you're learning it. To me, I would describe it as it feels like a fire hose of information just pouring into your mind just looking out the window. And, uh, and then it, for me, it was only after about 20 or 30 orbits of just paying really close attention and being awestruck by everything that I saw that I actually passed over Austin, Texas. Mm. And, and I looked out the window and went, oh, that's Austin. I said, there's Lake Travis. And I said, there's the 360 bridge. That's close to my house. There is the bend in the river. There is a maybe I can, if I think about it hard, there's a little glint from the observatory on top of my house. And, at, and in the same view, I could see Houston and in the Gulf Coast. And I used to, in Boy Scouts, camp all this area. And so, like, this is an area I knew the scale of, like, the back of my hand. And literally, as soon as, as, soon as I noticed that, it sort of dawned on me that I now know the true scale of the planet by direct observation. And as soon as that crossed my mind, it hit me. I literally, I shook. I physically shuddered sitting there in front of the window. I got goosebumps. I still get goosebumps when I retell this story. Mm. And, and at that moment, I, you know, it, 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 the, way, the best way to describe the feeling is it felt like being in a scary movie where they uh, have an actor in a hallway and uh, the, they'll dolly a camera back but zoom the lens in to where the actor stays the same size but the hallway seems to collapse around them. You know, the earth didn't change size out the window, but suddenly my sense of scale and reality just went like in the matrix, literally. And, and that's why I said, wow, this is awesome and needs to be shared. But then as we began to talk about how in the heck are we going to do this, because that's the way it happened for me, I've always had this bias towards presuming that you really needed to have it happen in the way at least that I experienced it, which was after a number of orbits. So I was always worried about how are we gonna provide this to people with a shorter time on space, in space. And then on that phone call, I said, Richard, I really disagree. <laughs> um, and yeah, the best, two things. The best metaphor I've come up with to make my counterpoint is, that's like saying there's no such thing as love is first sight. Because 20 years into the marriage, you see it all differently than you did on day one. It, there was that moment. It actually was the moment of transformation. And if you get longer, a longer trip, more orbits, people who, my longest flight was 20, it was 10 days. There are people spending months at a time on station. I didn't spend enough time to see seasons change. I could watch weather patterns move. I could watch dust clouds move. Uh, and the dynamics are really impressive. But I could also imagine being able to watch the Appalachian Mountains green up in the spring and then go vivid red in the fall. Uh, to see that would be a whole other scale. But I can tell you, the very moment the main engines cut off on my first space flight, eight and a half minutes into the flight, I finally lifted my eyes away from the instrument panels and I'm looking over the shoulder of our pilot through the six windows at the front of the shuttle, and we're upside down, so we're looking down at Earth, 
We started in Florida eight and a half minutes earlier. We're now over England and the blue and white of the northern Atlantic, and the site pulled the breath right out of me. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it also pulled out, wow, look at that, uh, <laughs> which you should not really say at eight and a half minutes, because we're still in a checklist and we should be concentrating. Uh, but happily, my commander chalked it off to typical rookie reaction and didn't give me any big demerits. But, but I had another thought I offered to Richard on that call about the overview effect. I've always chafed at that label that Frank White gave it. it. It suggested to me that if you get the panorama big enough, something it's the panorama. And I started reading some of the psychological literature that talks about the overview effect from a different angle to try to understand it and find out if I was just being a snob or there really was something different here. And I think there really is something different here. I think that what happens, why you feel the way you do is it's related to having that big view, but the impact is the awe, and the awe creates what's called a small self. So our sense of ourselves is always pretty big, where we have agency, we do things, we move in our world and create things, and that moment snaps you into realization of how small your personal self really is, and how amazing it is that it's part of this great whole. And the other dimensions you find astronauts always talking about is the, the care for others they felt, the care for the earth they felt, even people who'd never given any of that stuff the thought before. Mm -hmm. you know, we had a period died in the oil engineer on one of my flights, didn't want any of the geology training or meteorology training, none of that, until he saw it. And then he couldn't get enough of it. And I flew with him two flights later, and now he's counseling all the rookies. Pay attention to the stuff you're gonna really want it. So, so that small self is the magic, I think, of that experience. And it's not the only place it can happen. You know, Richard had glimpses of it in high altitude airplanes before his space flight, so did I. And I'm absolutely convinced that the kind of extraordinary experience worldview is gonna offer is gonna be a really rich, immersive version of that. I think that's my cue. I think that's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. At Worldview, we've, we've really spent some time to learn from people like Richard and Kathy and Nicole Stott, um, uh, Alan Eustace, who holds the world record for the highest skydive and longest freefall from the stratosphere. And there were a number of things that became apparent in, in learning from others that has informed our approach. And it really came down to uh, defining four specific um, attributes that we felt like were important for a space tourism experience. And those four attributes are that space tourism is about place, it's about time, it's about affordability, and it's about accessibility. Um, and read that as attainability. Um, and, and I want to talk about those four things um, and, and pull on a, a few things that we've learned uh, and just speaking to those who have experienced the, the overview effect. And we, 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 don't, we don't say that what we're going to deliver is the overview, overview effect. Rather, you know, what, what our goal is is to provide a peak experience for people, an, an experience where it's meaningful for them, where it can be life-changing, where there is that, that moment of awe uh, that, uh, that, that inspires them moving forward in their life. And so, you know, when we, when we think about the, the idea that space tourism is about place, you know, it comes down to something that Richard said, um, and it was also informed uh, in a conversation I had with Nicole Stott around recognizing something. 
seeing something that you truly can relate to. And so when we started designing our space tourism solution, we, we recognized that it needed to be rooted in places where we can immerse people in the beauty of an area, the fragility of an area, have time exploring an area, and, and essentially um, have a wondrous experience before they even leave the ground. Um, and so th that's the, what we call the seven wonders of the world stratospheric edition. That's the Grand Canyon, that's the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, the Great Wall of China in Mongolia, the Aurora Borealis in northern Norway, uh, the Giza pyramids uh, in Egypt, uh, the Serengeti operating out of uh, the Maasai Mara in Kenya, Africa, and uh, the Amazon jungle in Brazil. All of these places, if you've been to any of them, you know is, a, is just a wondrous place to, to visit on Earth. And it's a place where you can connect people to the beauty of the area, the fragility of the area. And you know, to, to pull on the, the, the spaceport in the Grand Canyon, it, 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 for, for me, it's a bit personal in that I grew up in Arizona. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Hopi Nation and Navajo Nation. And I've got to, to, to learn about the history of an area, but most importantly, the fragility of the area. And you can experience that by exploring the, those areas. And that's where time becomes an important component. Time on the ground in these areas before you ascend above them, and then time above. And so you know, we're not going to be orbiting the Earth uh, every 90 minutes. We're not going to be crossing over uh, the North America in 20 minutes. Rather, uh, we're going to be spending six, seven, eight hours above these areas, watching uh, night turn to day, watching day turn to night, watching weather form over these areas, but also connecting to those areas that you just explored, that you just spent time standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and seeing just how massive it is and then seeing just how small it is when you're looking at it from the edge of space. Um, to Richard's other point around we need to be able to deliver this to as many people as possible, this is where our idea that space tourism is about uh, um, accessibility and affordability really comes to bear. So, you know, our, our thought process is that, um, it, it, you know, although, you know, strapping yourself to a rocket and experiencing 6Gs, that sounds very fascinating to me, and I hope to experience that one day, uh, that's not for everybody, you know. And I think about a conversation I had with my Uncle Frank. Uh, my Uncle Frank um, um, had ALS, uh, and he was one of the people that was very curious about space that really was an inspiration to me. Uh, and in talking to my Uncle Frank and talking to him about space tourism and talking to him about what we were doing at Worldview, it became very clear that you know, one of the regrets in his life was never being able to experience going to space. Um, and you know, that was heartbreaking for me. It was, um, uh, certainly had the means, but um, didn't have the access to an approach that would enable him. And so when we think about space tourism, uh, it, 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 there needs to be a solution that is available to a broader number of people, regardless of their physical ability, regardless of you know, whether or not they are uh, um, uh, uh, you know, of an appropriate age, et cetera. And so that's, that's really one of our focuses. And then lastly, uh, the, the idea of affordability, attainability, became really um, um, forefront for us in that, uh, you know, 
If we are to deliver this to a number of people that creates a critical mass that ultimately has a positive impact on the planet, uh, then there has to be a solution that is far more attainable for a far greater number of people. So listen, we, we are a for-profit company and we will always be a for-profit company and uh, we will do our best to return a profit to our shareholders. Uh, but there is an intersection for a purpose-driven company that one has to find, and that intersection being staying true to who you are as a company. And for us, that is that we exist to inspire, create, and explore new perspectives for a radically improved future. A radically improved future only happens if we can deliver this to as many people as possible. And so it requires us to be creative on how do we, how do we intersect that purpose with running a business that can be uh, a profitable business uh, and one that can be a growing business. And so, uh, so we've innovated around making this as affordable as possible, starting at $50,000 uh, versus many millions of dollars and, uh, and, and, and going from there. So that's, that's our approach. If, if I can make a comment on that too, <clears throat> <coughs> Just for, for full disclosure, I've also I've reserved four seats myself also mm -hmm. because it's the way I can affordably take my whole family. Yes. So they have a family of four. And um, and what's interesting about orbit versus 10, 10 hours of hang time mm -hmm. is, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, on the plus side for orbit, one of the reasons you're glued at the window is it's only coming on in view for about two minutes and then it's going to be out of your view in about two minutes and you may not go over that same track again during a daylight pass so you, if you don't look now you're going to miss it forever as far as uh, you're concerned and the nice thing about 10 hours of hang time is literally you can sit up there and have a conversation about it and examine and discuss and re-look around and think about your thumb blocking distances and shapes i mean you'll you'll literally have an, an, a, such an abundance of time to take it in that that will be a completely new kind of experience. And it will be a very different kind of, of ability to share it. I mean, you meet with your crewmates at the window for those two-minute passes maybe and ooh and ah over something or <laughs> compare notes. But it's almost impossible. I mean, it is impossible to really talk about that to any other person in a way that really connects it with them. I mean, they love to listen. They love to see your vacation pictures over and over and over again. Uh, but... We all know that's not the same, right? You, you want to test the equation of why do people need to go to Mars, try this one. Uh, then you don't need to go to your daughter's wedding, I'll just send you the pictures. That's, that'll, be, that'll be sufficient. Yeah. You know, everybody knows it's not. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so many questions going through my head as you all are speaking. Um, Kathy, one thing you noted on is the small self feeling, and you know we all, we're all talking about this paradigm shift essentially that happens to astronauts. Um, Ryan, your company is working to make it accessible to as many people as possible for as affordable as possible. Um, I'm curious the thoughts of all three of you. What do you think? What do you see the ripple effects as being as more and more people have access to this perspective? Well, I hope, I, look, it is, it is admittedly hard, I think Richard would agree, when you come back to Earth and all the normal chaos and pace and, and pressures of living a human life on Earth come barging back in on you, um, but they, they really don't manage to fully erase that realization that you had, uh, that every, every single living thing on this planet, from every human down to every bacterium to the small little worms we saw on the bottom of the Marianas Trench, every single living thing on this planet is intimately interconnected in countless ways. Some of which we know, some of which we can kind of quantify, many of which we don't. 
and I think for me, coming back with a radically transformed sense uh, of, of risk uh, and a radically transformed sense of my, my true genuine connection to other people and places, whether I've met them or not, whether I like them or not, whether I understand them or not, there's a connection there uh, that I value, that I credit, and that I'm curious to understand and know more about, not to turn and walk away from. <laughs> you know, I agree, of course, with that. And what I would add is, um, you know, for me, as I was being impressed by this fire hose of info, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure this audience would not have doubted, as I did not doubt when I flew, the human impact on this planet. But when you're in space, you see it laid out in a way that makes it incredibly obvious that seven billion people, uh, our consumption of energy is clearly uh, bountifully above what is needed to uh, put too much CO2 into the incredibly small amount of atmosphere we have. You also see things like how we're using all the fresh water that naturally lands on the surface of the earth completely, plus a bunch of fossil water pumping out which we might be able to get more if we desalinated it, but that puts that back into energy again, which is our first problem. So you're going, hmm. And then you go like, oh, and by the way, that's gonna cause a food crisis, and that's gonna cause, you know, you just see this cascade of all these problems, in fact, that they're related to each other, mm -hmm. and they're compounded. And so when you come back, I'm going like, okay, you know, before I flew, I called myself an environmentalist, and I felt, and I still am proud that I, you know, my, one of my biggest charities is the Nature Conservancy, which I think is a great apolitical way to put land into good stewardship. But then I also looked at the number of Amazon boxes that were coming into my house and my two acres of St. Augustine grass that I was watering with a 700 foot down deep well and my pool and my pond with a waterfall and uh, my Texas air conditioners, et cetera, et cetera, and my outside lights beaming onto my observatory to make it look nice. Um, and, uh, and I went, wow, you know, I am not living the life that I describe. And so I said, look, I can at least afford to explore how close to zero impact can I become? And, uh, but, I, but I also was practical enough to go like, but I know I'm not gonna, like, I'm not gonna suffer for it in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to, uh, as a case study, I went to try to buy uh, biodegradable trash bags. I don't know if you've ever, how many people have found those to be purchasable, but most of the time when I find them, they're like flat packed, that are hard to pull out of the box and get just one, and they don't have a, a pull string, definitely don't have the gripper, and uh, as I'm going, like, it's just not delivered in a packaging I'm willing to use. At least it wasn't, hasn't, haven't found it yet. Um, but I put, you know, electrical probes on every, every circuit in my house, and I quickly realized that lights were pretty much irrelevant compared to my air conditioning, which is also pretty much irrelevant compared to all the water I was moving. Mm. Uh, but, it, but it really did start to realign my life. And so now I have a much better sort of measured, scientifically justified, uh, plus a little bit of lifestyle still in there, uh, kind of way that I now operate going forward and that I can evangelize for with a little bit more uh, authority or uh, willingness to be walking the walk. Well, I think great perspectives. And there's one thing that, that, uh, that is important to us, and I think that's the creation of community. Um, and uh, I know that people have, that have experienced it uh, it will seek out that community, and and if we can deliver this to as many people as possible, you, first you start to create or have the formation of community, and then the then the job is to provide uh, some uh, some concrete things that they can do, 
you know, so I, I do have a biodegradable trash bag that I'll send you that uh, has a drawstring <laughs> and it's in a roll. And uh, Perfect. yes, Perfect. Uh, the problem is, is it's delivered via Amazon. <laughs> it's all interconnected. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is a step in the right direction. You know, so so there are several things that you know that 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 I think are important. One is conversation. You know, you know, even just through this conversation, we we create some awareness. And you know, the the the, the thought process that we have is that the first community that you create in having your space tourism experience or your space flight experience is those who you experience it with. Um, and so we want to make sure that we help forge those experiences through things like Jeffersonian-style dinners and just brainstorming what might we be able to do as a community uh, to, uh, to take this forward and how do we contribute to the critical mass you know, of making uh, a sound behavioral change that, uh, that ultimately leads to uh, an improved future. And so you know, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about and, and wanting to make sure that we cultivate community. And then one last thought. Um, uh, I think that there is, uh, there is something that we as a, as a company can do to set an example. It, it, uh, it's, it's one thing for us to cultivate an experience for people to have their own behavioral shift, uh, but we're also recognizing that as a company, we need to run our business in a way that uh, sets an example of not how to be you know, uh, climate neutral, but how to be climate positive, both in the waste that we create in the, in the carbon that, uh, that we currently output versus the carbon that we consume over time, uh, and showing that even a company like ours in aerospace uh, that has significant manufacturing and uses a significant amount, amount of polyethylene plastic, that we can show that there is that, that a business like ours can be climate positive, and if we can do it, others can do it. Uh, and that's one of the, the the goals that we have is to to simply be climate positive, while also delivering an experience for people where where they can have enough of a of an impact, uh, a, a, a a peak experience in their lives where they they have a desire to have a positive impact. Uh, another thing I'm excited about the opportunity Ryan's opening up, and we've talked about this a little bit is uh, you, the kind of conversation you could curate aboard a worldview mission. Mm -hmm. So not just family, people, or friends who want to have this shared experience together, but how about people in real world roles that are wrestling with a wicked problem <laughs> and are struggling to each get past you know, their entrenched or typical home view. Uh, and there's a whole art of hosting kind of community that's developed conversational methods to help move people past those impasses. To constructive solutions. I mean, it was this was one key. This was one key, by the way, in how South Africa found its way out of the apartheid government into the nation it become without you know completely self imploding as it did that. So imagine taking that kind of conversation circle of six or eight leaders up after a curated ground experience mm -hmm. and putting it in that place where they maybe maybe what would become small were the barriers they were holding up against each other, and they would realize that was actually pretty paltry. I bet we can figure something out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, and something just interesting to note is Frank White, who coined the term overview effect, often talks about there's certain personality traits that make someone more susceptible to really, I'll just say, deep experiences of awe, which is what the overview effect is, when the main one being openness. And so like Ryan's saying, like 
prepping people for their experience. That's something that we do with Space for Humanity is we do pre-flight preparation to just help them get ready for it. And then we support them in integrating it as well so that it's not just like a, um, what's it called? Yeah, exactly. It's not just one one experience that never continues on. A joy ride, that's the word I'm looking for. It's not a joy ride. It's something that changes someone forever and that they let um, integrate into their lives. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can get that sort of paradigm-shifting experience. I know there's a big psychedelics track at South By this year, and, you know, that's one way that people can open their minds and shift their view of reality and ultimately will cause behavior changes as well. Um, exploration is another one. Um, and so, Richard, with you, you know, you've explored incredible amounts. I'm curious, what has been the most profound for you? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, um, as we alluded to here briefly, you know, one of the reasons I think it might have taken me more time than others was because I'd kind of been working up to it from balloons to MiG-25s, to orbit. And I didn't mention, when, when, I, when we first rolled over on a Soyuz and I first saw my first view of Earth from 250 miles up, my first thought was not, wow, I made it, and look at this beautiful view. My, my actual thought was, wow, we're not nearly as high up as I thought we were going to be. I sure hope we're in a perfectly circular orbit or we're going to be reentering again in a minute, and that's going to suck. And so I was watching the controls to make sure there were no red lights. And so uh, and it was only after a few tumbles I'm going okay, we're not reentering, so uh, we must be in orbit. You know, and then I could begin to kind of look around and take it in. So I had a very, you know, almost an opposite reaction for that, for, that first, uh, for that first moment. But interestingly, prior to space, hands down, well, space, by the way, is 100 times better than this one, but the one that was 10 times better than anything else, for me at least, was the interior of Antarctica. Mm. Um, the interior of Antarctica is so otherworldly you know, despite the fact that other than what you bring with you, there is only ice, rock, and air, and the things you, you and your friends brought with you, and yet the sculpture of all that is phenomenal. Your inability to detect distances because there's no difference in scale between ripples and snow and then moguls, then undulations, then, you know, miles and miles of, of heaves, same thing's true for mountains versus rocks. The air is pristinely clear. There's no roads or trees or telephone poles to tell distance. And the, and the ice you're sitting on top of, the two-mile-thick sheet of ice, acts like a waveguide to carry sound indefinitely far away from you. Uh, and then the wind often will, like on the leeward side of a mountain, it would dig 100-meter-tall what looked like frozen tidal waves of clear blue ice you kept experience, you kept expecting, at least I did, to see like giant frozen dinosaurs in it or something, uh, like a Tim Burton movie. And then throughout these places that had, uh, you know, sublimated away and then refrozen or melted and refrozen, so you'd see frozen lakes and f giant frost crystals growing in massive fields. Anyway, you, like you can see I can go on and on about this. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Uh, so yes, I do. That's what I go seek in life: is these truly awesome, inspirational places. Um, but that's again probably why I'm, you know, it, I'm a hard person to please, you know, so to speak, on that. So that's probably might be why it took me, uh, you know, quite a few orbits before I was, you know, so moved. I don't understand how you got into the Explorers Club. <laughs> I actually did most we, all that we, after. We the lowered Club. our standards for a year. <laughs> Ryan, Kathy, I'm curious, 
do either of you have experiences on Earth that have had similar sorts of impacts on you? Well, so the, the seven wonders of the world stratospheric edition, um, uh, all seven of those places is, are places that I have explored personally and have had a profound experience at each one of them. Um, and so, it, you know, it was just a natural place to start of thinking about, you know, what is something that would be an interesting view from the edge of space while also being someplace that is interesting and immersive and, and inspiring for people when they're exploring it on the ground. Um, and you know, similar to Richard, I think I'm, I'm hard to please from an, from an exploration perspective, but you know, there are places on this earth that are just truly, truly stunning and magnificent and awe-inspiring in their own way. Um, and, uh, and I can only imagine what it's like to have the experience to be, you know, in those areas, learning about those areas, and then seeing them from above. And so, uh, and in, in, you know, every time I fly over the Great Barrier Reef, you know, flying to Australia, um, uh, it, you cannot pull me away from the window. Um, it, it is just one of the most magnificent, magnificent experiences that I've ever had. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, to see areas that are healthy of the, the Great Barrier Reef and then to also see the areas that are dying uh, in the Great Barrier Reef, um, just, just that experience alone is transformative for me. And so, um, it, you know, I... I uh, it's, a, I guess, a bit personal in, the, in, in these seven places around the world, but it's also you know, something that I think is worthy of sharing with as many people as possible. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm booking a seat on the first Aurora flight. Uh, I mean, you've seen the Aurora from space. It's a spectacular sight. Oh, wow. uh, most time, many times when you see it on Earth, it's that little green glow off there that mm-hmm. you sort of can see with your eyes. It actually shows up better on your camera. But I, I took a group of people up to the north of Norway uh, oh, in the Christmas New Year's time frame a couple of years ago. New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, we're at the North Cape of Norway, ringing in the New Year with a little bit of a concert and a lovely reception. And it's, you know, it's barren, totally barren outside, dead, dead clear sky, it's blowing close to a gale. Everybody was popping out to take their photo by the little North Cape Memorial and then rushing back in to get their hot toddy until someone opens the door and says, you guys wanna, might want to come out. And the entire sky lit up. This, this river of green and blue light over our heads. Uh, I found a little dip in the snow and laid down in it. So the wind's going over me, and I'm a tad warmer. And I just laid there for probably 30, 40 minutes, just watching this wall of light right, right above my head. And you watch it undulate, and you can watch it streak of energy move across it. And it gets brighter and higher. I mean, it's... It's a, it feels like a living thing, and it's you know, purely a physical phenomena. Uh, it's the closest to seeing it from an orbit I've ever experienced on Earth, and it just mesmerizes you. So that and the other thing we all have in common is high latitudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the scale of silence when you get to certain places in the Arctic or Antarctic, and there's, I mean, there's no one you can see, maybe a dot there that's a scientific hut or a house, but the whole volume of the area you're in, like deep fjord in the north of Iceland, and you're at the very base of it, the entire volume is silent. And you find yourself whispering to each other as if you just realized you actually are in a cathedral. Wow, that's amazing, yeah. Did you have something to add? Oh yeah, I I will. We were out You're not hunt- going to be able to stop us. <laughs> we were out hunting meteorites in a very remote place, and so when we weren't actively making noise, it was silent for 
a thousand miles in every direction. And we happened to have a weather period where there was no wind. And so for three or four days, it was literally silent. And other than this weird waveguide effect from, which is why you keep your tents really far apart from each other is because otherwise you hear each other burping and grunting and whatever else. And, um, uh, and one of the things I noticed is, I don't know if, about you, but if I lie in bed at, at night and think about it, I can hear a little ringing in my ears. And I think that's not uncommon that if you are in a really quiet place, you can. But, and if you put on like Bose headsets or go into a room with of acoustic tiles, I would argue those feel like oppressive silence, meaning it's almost a forced mechanical, you know, muffling. Yeah. But if you are in a place that is truly silent, it is completely different. And after two or three days, because the little cilia in your ears have not been agitated, they quit ringing and you become, you have literally superhuman hearing. And I remember waking up at night, well, there's no night, daytime. I remember waking up, lying in my, lying on top of your sleeping bag, because even though it's minus 50 outside, the 24 hours of sunlight and still air means that your pup tent still gets toasty warm. And I thought I heard a fly in my tent. And I'm going like, there can't be a fly in my tent. There's no flies. And then I looked around at my tent and it's like, what's making this little fly noise? And I can't find it in the tent. So I opened up my tent. I look outside and 20 meters away, there's somebody else's tent. And there's a tiny little breeze that is rubbing the zipper together like wow. this. And it sounds like a fly in my tent. And so that's how much that waveguide and super hearing does for you when you're in these really alien environments. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's something that I talk about often is that I got the opportunity to scuba dive when I was a teenager, and I credit my love for space from that. Because it wasn't until I was 19 that I discovered my love for space. And I think it was getting the opportunity to explore like alien worlds, essentially, that then opened me up to the possibility of space. <laughs> But, but this is something actually to ask about the worldview capsule, which I know, you know has, has yet to be manifested in totality. And I'm curious what you felt on the shuttle uh, about this also. But on the space station, the Russian segments were very noisy. In fact, you know, it was something you talked about a lot even before flight was how noisy those modules were. And I happened to sleep in the Columbus module uh, that was the newest module that had been attached. And before there was any scientific instruments and it turned on, so it was dead silent. And when I would sleep up there, I would he hear at night what sounded to me like if you're driving your car on a snowy night and wet snow is hitting the front of your windshield, so there's sort of a t -t 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 sound. And I'm sitting here lying there going like, what the heck is this sound? Because it obviously can't be snow or anything else hitting the spacecraft. But I would actually go wake up my crewmates. And so I got Mike Fink. I'd bring Mike Fink over. He was sleeping in the Kibo module. And we'd lie there in the dark, in the quiet, just listening in the silence of space for the tiniest little you know, creak or groan or movement of the space station, which was fascinating. So I actually think that quietness mm -hmm. is gonna be an important feature. So um, the entire sensory experience is something that you know, is, is important to cultivate. You know? so, there are periods of time where I think you know some music is appropriate, you know, sure. you know, on launch and through ascending until you get to the crescendo of uh, apogee, and then letting people experience true silence. 
um, it, you know, there's obviously the visual aspect and in, you know, in, in, in designing the capsule, the size of the windows is very important uh, because what we're selling is a view, right? Uh, and the tilt, and, the, right, the angle exactly, of the window. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, but then there are other things that we have been thinking through, which is, you know, what should it smell like? What, mm. what should the memory be? Um, um, and how do you how do you cultivate the, the smell uh, sensories um, so that you know that someone can buy a candle or you know buy a scent and re re uh, experience that memory through scent and so uh, and then the temperature you know like uh, you know the temperature is something we, we we think through and and you have to think through it because you know it it has to be contributing to the experience and and uh, and contributing to one of the senses that you feel. When you're when you're when you're having the memory, It'd be interesting to do some focus groups with folks and say maybe even let let people pick their scent. The gentleman that Richard and I both dove to the bottom of the Marianas Trench with, his submarine takes four hours to go down and four to go back up, and uh, just to lighten the mood and and be a little amusing. Uh, he asked each of us to pick the movie we wanted to watch as we were surfacing. <laughs> and you stop the movie every 15 minutes and call the, the surface and just let them know you're okay and you're still coming up. And then you start the movie again. Uh, what was your movie? What was the movie? Yeah. I did The Man Who Would Be King because I, I love that movie. I hadn't seen it in a, a hundred years. And it's just, you know, we are on a grand adventure and this is a grand adventure with a lot of humor woven through it and three actors that you should always want to see together anyway. Mine was Dust Boat. Mm, of course. I love that. And I've actually heard a number of stories from astronauts about choosing a specific song during times in the, in the space flight. Yeah, yeah I, I had... The other big thing I was looking forward to on my flight is... Uh, remember, this is 1984, which is a while ago. On Rev 17 of that flight, we had a killer pass right over the whole Himalayan plateau and Mount Everest, and I had poured over the geology of that region for months and months and months. I think I had every other astronaut's picture of the region mosaiced on my wall with all the good maps mosaiced on the other wall, um, and that's something I really wanted to see. I had a very specific soundtrack or playlist for my headphones for that moment, and to this day, if there are two pieces of music, it's either that song or the theme music to The Dream is Alive, the IMAX movie that included a lot of footage from my first flight. If either of those come on, no matter what I'm doing, the middle of a book, writing a paper, doesn't matter. My brain stops and I'm back in space. Mm, I love that. You know, I, I have to give props here to Dr. Cyan Proctor for the, uh, uh, not only the, the thing you did the day before, was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? Yesterday? Yesterday. Yesterday. And, uh, yeah. but, uh, uh, where uh, and also on orbit, where I'd seen this piece before, but where uh, when they were opening the hatch to the cupola on the Dragon for the first time, mm -hmm. and she was filming, and she played the 2001 soundtrack, and managed to cat catch Haley with her first view of the Earth as that opens up, and the this un segmented dome of glass, a one-of-a-kind thing that these four got to do, uh, take in this amazing view of the Earth in a way that no one other than these four people have ever had, uh, and how, how, all, how, what a moment that was for Haley. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that that was a moment for Haley, if you, uh, if you get to see that piece. And that song will always mean it to her. Yeah, mm -hmm. so exactly. 
And I think that you can see that clip on the Inspiration4 documentary, if I'm correct. Yeah, on Netflix. Um, amazing. Okay, so last question, and then we're going to open it up for questions. Um, so, you know, you're all talking about incredible experiences that might not be accessible to the common person just yet. What advice would you give to the people sitting here about how they can um, get that sense of awe just on a daily basis or in their own practice and ways? You know, I, th I think it boils down to finding some way each day if you can, however small. It, it's really not about scale per se. Uh, Inject some adventure in your life. I interviewed a guy on my podcast a while back named Alistair Humphreys, whose initial claim to fame was the man who rode across Africa on a bicycle. But yeah, Alistair, Alistair does back step, doorstep adventures. He'll go travel around in the midst of England where he lives with a bivy sack and if he's giving a talk somewhere or visiting family. He'll just look on the map till he finds a little isolated hill that's out away from everywhere and he'll go up and plop his sleeping bag down on the ground. and and spend the night there, taking in the hill, taking in the sounds. You're putting yourself in a place that, is, that stretches you a bit, that shifts your sense of engagement with that place, with the people or that town. Uh, it's a getting out of yourself moment. And I think you'll get, you'll get some dose of this kind of experience and this rethinking of who you are and how you fit in a place through each one of those little steps. Yeah, and I, and I would argue that it can even literally be found in your backyard. Um, you know, for me, as, as much as people often think it's my astronaut father that would be my bigger inspiration for exploration, it's really my naturalist mother who was the person who, you know, as an example, but it's my predominant one in my life, for my kindergarten science fair project, she took me to the backyard and we were listening to the cicadas and there was a wasp here in Texas called the cicada killer wasp down in Houston, they're particularly uh, common. Uh, and the wasp will go and sting the cicada, and then a small wasp will drag this heavy cicada down onto the grass, make little hops with it till, till it takes it down to its underground burrow, which we then dug up. Uh, we, it, the wasp lays its eggs on the living but paralyzed cicada, which we made a little glass terrarium to where we could see this, plugs the hole as the, the wasp leaves, the, the, the grubs hatch and consume the living cicada, turn into little, you know, pupate into little other little grubby things, and then emerge as full-grown cicada killer wasps. And that was awesome. And it was in my backyard, and I, I won first place in science fair project, and I competed every year from then on. You could do, and, you uh, could do that or go to space. <laughs> but, but the point is, the awe is there. It's, it's around us all the time. So, you know, I grew up on a cattle ranch in far southern Arizona, uh, and, you know, my sense of exploration uh, and respect for our planet started with sleeping on the ground under the stars with my grandfather um, and listening to him talk about, you know, his life experiences in, in, uh, in exploring the earth and exploring uh, the ranch and those kinds of places. And so I completely agree with the, 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 the thought process that, it's all available to us here, right? We, we don't have to leave the earth to rediscover the earth. Um, we can find opportunities to rediscover the earth just by exploring the earth. Um, that said, I think it's a transformational experience um, uh, for someone to experience viewing our earth, um, and, but, but we, can, we can all find inspiration just by, by exploring and rediscovering earth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. 
Who's got questions? <laughs> Amazing. It's two of my favorite people right now. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Um, my name is Loretta Whiteside. I'm a, I have a ticket to fly out to space with Virgin Galactic. Um, and I just wanted to piggyback on that question because I'm super excited. There's going to be a total eclipse of the sun again in the United States next April 8th, 2024, right here in Austin. Even better if you go a little bit west into hill country. Um, it's this kind of jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring experience that we've been talking about that you can have on Earth. I say it's the closest you can get to being awed by, this, by the majesty of the galaxy while with your feet on the ground. And what's the website? <laughs> Eclipsefest.org. But yeah, so come, come back, come join us, come have your own space flight with us. But it's an experience that will really drive home to you that you yeah. live on a ball, you live on a planet mm -hmm. that's actually moving really fast as we sit here anchored to our seats in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. Hey, you. Um, hi, thank you for such a wonderful panel. And um, one of the things that I like to think about a lot is how we create a Jedi space, just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive space for um, ourselves here on Earth and beyond. And uh, when we think about commercial space flight, especially in 2021, one of the things that I love is that when you look at Blue Origin and you look at Virgin Galactic, and Inspiration4, every single flight had somebody who was gifted or won a seat to space. So people who didn't have access before. And so how do we encourage the access where um, even at 50,000, it's uh, obtainable to a lot, but it's not obtainable to everyone. And so this whole idea of as commercial space continues to develop, and we have access, but access for that Jedi space future that we all want. Could you speak to that? Well, I, I'd love that you asked this Great. question. Um, and, and so, you know, as a commercial space flight and space tourism company, you know, there is no greater demand than the very first flight, um, which you all completely understand. Uh, and so we could have gone through the process of auctioning off those seats, or auctioning off the capsule, uh, and we decided that was not the right thing to do. Rather, the right thing to do would be to partner with Space for Humanity and let them have the first flight, let them select uh, the people who are going to experience it. And one of the things I love about Space for Humanity is uh, their approach for cultivating people that are gonna make a difference, but also uh, cultivating access for communities that wouldn't otherwise have access. Um, and so the first flight goes to Space for Humanity and then nine additional flights uh, for, for Space for Humanity. Uh, and I hope many more after that mm -hmm. um, um, over time. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and I'll just, I'll add a couple things that are really interesting, which Sion, this is no news for you, but so when we sent two people this past year and on both of those flights, so those were both sponsored seats by us, and on both of those flights there were people, who, someone from MoonDAO, who basically got sponsored through a DAO, and then someone else who got sponsored by a crypto company on the other one. So there were, yeah, two seats on both of those flights that were fully sponsored in some other way. Um, then the other thing, I'll just do a little plug for our applications for anyone who's interested. We open them annually, um, and so I, you know, it could be the selections from this year, it could be next year that ends up flying with Worldview. Um, but if you go to spaceforhumanity.org, you can apply to our program as well. Yeah. 
Hi guys, my name is Marco. Uh, first of all, uh, I didn't know that uh, Catherine Janeway was based on a real Catherine. Uh, thank you for that information. Welcome. <laughs> but on um, a more serious note, uh, when I was listening to you guys, I mean, this effect that you'll be talking about sounds pretty impactful. And in my mind, there are a couple of people that need to experience it, this a little bit more than others. So uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, like, uh, why don't we like, go to the UN and say that all world leaders, you're required to go to space <laughs> to get this, because there is so much you know, focus on national issues. You really need that overview effect, in my mind. I mean, is, is it costs like $50,000, you said? That's correct. Yeah, but yeah. It's like two missiles, and then you have you can send yeah. half the One missile. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Great idea. Yeah. Are you speaking to that anymore, or is it, or is that it? Okay. Sorry, I'm not here. I can't hear you. I was just wondering if you were no, speaking go ahead. to his. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just kind of want to go on top of that a little bit. Um, it feels like I'm having a really unexpected reaction in here. Um, the idea of space exploration um, for the regular old person is really exciting and thrilling to me. And um, there's so much magic in science. And I think that the more people are involved in science and technology, the more opportunity there is for that small self. Um, but often, the people that need to experience that and have the most influence in areas that um, can make the most you know, impact, positive impact in this planet and in terms of environmentalism specifically, um, will not be going to space and will not have this experience and will not make any change. And I'm feeling, um, I, I was listening to the comment about, um, you know, a self-perspective of and being an environmentalist and going to space and then, you know, seeing your whole world so differently and, the Amazon packages coming in and how it all connects and thinking, oh my gosh, what have I been doing? You know, all of these things. But um, man, the cost, the resource cost of going to space is insane. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to the cost benefit ratio there at all and how is this worth it? Well, one thought on the cost benefit and the trajectory of things, uh, you make a really valid point. The, the cost of getting something to orbit has begun to go down substantially. And it, it, you know, it, it takes a while to get there, just as it did in early aviation. But it's, it's good news that especially guys like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are driving that down and can keep driving down. And if we bring more companies in that each can make some living in space, it will keep going down further. How long will it be till it's an airline ticket price? I don't know, but I think at some point it will get awful darn close to an airline ticket price. And, and, and I want to add to that, too. Not only do I think the airline price is coming sooner than you might think, but then there are other technologies. If, well, for, first of all, a rocket, once it can carry 100 people at a time to orbit, which means you can land anywhere else you want to on the Earth at the same time, in contrast to jumbo jets that we regularly fly back and fly forth over the Atlantic, which I presume most people think it's useful for us to be able to travel across our own globe, uh, I would argue rockets are already, especially with Starship, not worse than airlines. But there's also even, but if we decide that that's not true, like if we decide dumping 
certain kinds of things in the upper atmosphere is problematic. Then we have beamed energy propulsion that can come in behind that, that can actually get all the fuel out of it. And so I don't think the cost or the environmental impact is, is I, neither of those are permanent. Mm -hmm. Those are both going to be, become insubstantial in contrast to other things that we do as humanity. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think what I'd like to add to that is, what is important is to create awareness and conversations around what our impact actually is, right? And, you know, I, I, I liked, you know, how Richard talked about being able to actually experience it and view it. The problem is, is there's very few Richards, there's very few Dr. Cyan's, there's very few, you know, Cathy's in the world that, that, that have a voice that can share their experience. And so creating a bit more of a critical mass of people that can share that experience will be inspiring to, to, to people who don't ultimately get to experience viewing our Earth from space, mm -hmm. uh, but will be inspired to help create change. And on the comment of the people who need it most won't participate, you know, I, I do believe that we'll be able to create opportunities for people who need it most to participate and to have that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the very first things that Kathy said to me is, you need to find a way to make sure that um, there is a bipartisan group of politicians that go experience it and have a conversation around it and, you know, and understand the common ground of, one, it's a shared planet, it's the only, only planet we have, uh, and two, uh, how they can work together to have a positive impact. And so, you know, our, our approach is, my belief is, uh, that uh, creating awareness, creating conversation, and then also targeting uh, specific people who need to experience it um, is part of the solution. It's not the only solution, it's part of the solution. Uh, and, uh, and then in addition to that, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, as, as both Richard and Kathy explained, that over time this will become more accessible and mm -hmm. it already is becoming more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and yeah, we are at time. I'll just, I'll just have a quick response to you because I, come from your camp often honestly I like look around and I'm like what the heck is going on here and why are we living like this and how it's so backwards and we really 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 need to wake up and my perspective is also that space is one of those tools that we can use to help create massive shifts it's a it's a tool that people have a listening for like people have so much respect for astronauts you know like look at this room and I know during the Apollo era they were like rock stars that were greeted with parades um, and we need we need all the tools that we can get right now and and this is that moment for human spaceflight so that's that's where I stand with it and I just really feel you with your question and, and I think we can all, I'm sure they need the room back, but we can probably all, anybody that wants to have a conversation, we can continue it outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want, I want Lauren to ask a question. Can we, one last question, one last question. Maybe not. You've been cut off. I've been cut off. Be loud. Okay. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, thank you guys all for, for speaking and bringing this to us. Um, just quickly, curious about how this fits into the general landscape of space exploration. For example, are there enough, is there enough space up there for multiple companies like Worldview. How many are there? Will that drive up or down the cost of going over time? And are companies working together, you know, countries working together really potentially to make that happen? And some short answers. So, uh, 
One of the things that we certainly worry about, I, I worry about as just a, uh, uh, as a, a private astronomer, if you will, um, not maybe to the extent that Richard is, but is you know, space clutter and how many things are in space. Um, it, it, that said, I think the, all of the technologies that are, that are coming online now reduce the amount of, of things that stay in space. You know, like all of our stuff comes back. Um, you know, the reusable rockets, the approach that Virgin Galactic is taking, it, it, all of these are, are solutions that are temporary. We're not, we're not putting stuff into space and leaving it in space. Um, and so I, I believe space tourism, you know, uh, ultimately reduces the amount of, uh, of waste that is left in orbit. But we are in the dawn of a, a very different new space age. And yeah. a number, there needs to be substantial social and political work to get to where we get common agreements, some accords, some covenants about how are we all going to, all countries, all companies, how are we going to behave in space together? How are we going to not damage each other, not become an accumulating harm to the space environment itself? Space today is, is critical to humans on the Earth in countless ways. Uh, global communications, the global banking system, monitoring Earth's crops and natural resources, and on and on and on. So we, we need space for Earth, uh, and that has to be an environment we can continue to use to help us understand this planet and keep learning, keep learning a little more about how to live more wisely on this planet. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And let's give a round of applause for these amazing panelists.